Welcome to What We Believe, the podcast of the RCI program at St. Paul's. The RCIA program offers an overview of the Catholic faith in order to initiate students into the full life of the church. The following episodes are recorded live at St. Paul's Catholic Student Center. If you have questions or would like to join RCA, you can find more information on our website at uwcatholic.org. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas' Prayer Before Study Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, lofty origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your, bir- of your brilliance penetrate into the darkness of my understanding and take from me the double darkness into which I have been born, an obscurity of both sin and ignorance. Give me a sharp sense of understanding, a retentive memory, and the ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant me the talent of being exact in my explanations and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, and help in completion. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so the title of tonight's is The Holy Catholic Church, or Why Do I Need the Church? So we're going to cover a ton of questions about the church. What is the church? Where does it come from? What is even meant by the name church? What are some names and images of the church? How do we understand what's visible and invisible of the church? What are the visible elements of unity, the four marks of the church? And then a summary. So good luck. I don't think we're going to get through all that, but we're going to try. As we usually do, I want to start with review. So review Holy Spirit, salvation, and then talk a little bit about prayer because I didn't really get to that much at all, but I encouraged you to read the catechism handouts on prayer. And I'm going to highlight what I think are some of the more important aspects of that. So just very briefly, who is the Holy Spirit is the question, not what is the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is a person. What type of person? A divine person. Which divine person? Well, the third person of the Holy Trinity. More than just a bird, a floating, a symbol of fire, the Holy Spirit is personal. And so I can have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, and I worship and adore the Holy Spirit as I would worship and adore Jesus, as I worship and adore God the Father. That the Holy Spirit is the, what we see revealed at Pentecost, this moment where um, the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, and they began to speak in language once unknown to them, and truly kind of start what's called the birthday of the church. That on this day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit animated the faith of the 12 apostles, transforming them from cowardly, scared men into the most ferocious, passionate, on-fire individuals the world has ever seen. And the faith that we profess today was given to us by these 12 largely uneducated men all the way back there by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the Holy Spirit. Incredible power, passion that builds, animates, gives grace. We cannot come to faith except by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can say the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us like God himself, which is holy. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as the sanctifier. So then we talked about, well, what is the process of becoming holy or the process of salvation? Very important, especially if you're coming from a non-Catholic Christian tradition where we don't understand salvation as a one-time event. We don't understand salvation as an external declaration that God just declares you, okay, like we were, we were at odds before, now we're cool. Know that the Holy that the power of salvation is actually a process. It's a process whereby we actually become holy. My favorite line is that it's from 2 Peter, that we become partakers of the divine nature. And so far from external, it's this internal process. And I describe it, again, it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think this is an easy teaching way of a three-step process of justification, sanctification, inheritance. 
that at the moment of faith and baptism, I am justified. I am made righteous. I am made holy. I have been saved in that moment that the act of baptism truly saves me. And this is actually something we do share with a number of Protestant denominations, that baptism saves you, but not all. Some Protestant denominations would now say baptism is not actually something that saves you. But the tradition of the church and the scriptural evidence points to, yes, I am saved at baptism. A one-time event that then starts this process of interior transformation, whereby I start sanctification, where I grow in holiness, where now I actually live and love with the power of the Holy Spirit, and now the good works that I do have eternal consequences, that if I do something out of love for God, for another, I'll see the fruit of that action in heaven. Think about it, that God is eternal, And so unless I am sort of attached to him in a sense, or he dwells in me, I can't actually do an eternal act. But all of a sudden, when I am sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, washed clean of my sins in baptism, now I take on a whole new nature. I am born again, we sometimes say. And now I live a whole new life. I live a life for the Lord. And now, watch out, you become like those apostles and you have the power to change the world. But then ultimately we're still realized that even after I'm baptized, it's not going to make, when it can't all be like Pano, we went through Pano last week, it's not going to make all your problems go away. You're still going to struggle with different sins because there's something called concupiscence, this idea that we still have this inclination to sin, that there's still a temporal effects of this sin while the eternal guilt has been washed away. And so I still need to be sanctified. I still need to grow until that day, finally, when I die and I meet our Lord and I receive what? Inheritance. I receive an inheritance because I have been born again as a son and daughter of God. I become part of the family and therefore I am due the family inheritance. And so long as I don't deny that inheritance, that's what God wants of you, to be with him forever in heaven. And so our model is the story of Exodus, that the Israelites were saved from slavery to the Egyptians by the crossing of the Red Sea, that moment that they were saved through water from slavery. But then they wander 40 years in the desert, growing in holiness, needing to be fed by this bread from heaven, which foreshadows the Eucharist, until the moment that they reach the promised land, And in the story of, well, it's not just Exodus anymore, in the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they cross the Jordan River, another miraculous crossing of a water. And then amazingly, the manna, the bread from heaven, stops because they've arrived. They're in the promised land. And that's the analogy for us. We are saved by baptism from our sins, but we are saved for something. And so we walk in this life being hopefully saved for the eternal inheritance of heaven, whereby I won't need the Eucharist as such because I will be fully united with God himself. And so that's the sort of Exodus model, I think is the best way to understand this justification, sanctification, inheritance. We are saved from sin and saved for holiness. That it's a process of internal transformation, not legal declaration. That is what we believe as Catholics. I'm going to give one more analogy that I think is helpful as I try to explain this. And this is, you're not going to find this in the catechism. You're not going to find this. I think it's just a way to think about this. And it's a bit speculative as well. And it's very helpful that you guys all have water cups on your, on your um, tables. Because I think the analogy of the cup is helpful. Because God's grace is always overflowing. It's an it's an unending water pitcher, let's say, because this is all I've got. Clearly not unending. And it's just flowing, grace upon grace. The Lord just, just absolutely fills us up with grace. And when we're baptized, our cup is totally filled, okay? But here's the crazy thing about the analogy. If I have, my college favorite, a shot glass, or I have, yeah, I'm going to go there. We're going to go there. If I go to, a lot of people like to go to, shoot, what's the name now? Essen House and get a large boot. 
Do you want a shot glass of beer? Or do you want a boot of beer? Ask your average college student. They're going to want a boot of beer, right? It's like 60 ounces. I don't know how much, right? Careful there. But if a shot glass is full to the brim with beer, is it full? Yes, it is. Is it lacking anything? No, it's not. If a boot is full of beer to the brim, is it full? Yes, yes, it is. Is it lacking in anything? No, it's not. This is the analogy for us of sanctification or growth in holiness. That if we're the cup as we go through life, our cup can get bigger. And the more I grow in holiness, deny myself, offer myself up, do good works, I start growing the cup. And so, who's got the largest cup in heaven, if you will, for this analogy? Unquestionably, Mary, and we'll hear about that next week. What is Father Tim going to be? If I pray, I get there. A little shot glass, right? That's all. But that shot glass is still there in heaven, lacking nothing in the fullness of God. But the point is, actually, God wants to make you more than just a silly boot of beer. He wants to make you an ocean. To have the love in your heart grow to such capacity that there is no limit, in a sense. And so this work of sanctification is growing the glass. And so, yes, someone that lives a life of absolute, just like selfishness and murder and theft at the end of their life, they can convert, be baptized, and be saved. And we rejoice in that fact. But their cup is going to be a lot smaller than the person who spent the rest of their, the whole of their life growing in holiness. Does that make sense? That really, that analogy really helps us make sense of a lot of different things. Where heaven, again, isn't just this like prize if I follow the right rules. It's actually entrance into the life of the Trinity. And so the life of the Trinity is outpouring love. So we want to make our cup as big as possible to receive the fullness of the love. We can only receive something according to the capacity that we have. And this life is all about growing in capacity, learning how to love. Last analogy that's helpful here, I, I hope, would just be another way is, the other analogy I use is a sports stadium, right? If someone's in section double uh, E at Camp Randall, last row, upper deck, versus someone's row E, 50-yard line, right in the center, both are in the stadium, right? Yeah. One's in a little better position to take in a little bit more of the game. That's sort of my analogy as well, right? We want to get in the stadium, for sure. But we also want to grow in holiness. And some of the saints have really talked about how the things they would have done just to recognize that the grace that God is giving you to allow your cup to continue to grow. And so what is one of the biggest ways that your cup begins to grow? Prayer. And what does the Holy Spirit also do? Teaches us how to pray. Romans says we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for us to help us pray. Okay, so real quick, I hope you read that packet. If not, I would say over the next two weeks, please read that packet. That prayer, ultimately, the definition is just raising your mind and heart to God or the requesting of good things from God. That's a direct quote from the Catechism. Raising your mind and heart to God or requesting of good things from God. And I think we know the requesting of good things. That's actually usually what we think of prayer. I asked for this, I didn't get it. I asked for this, I did get it. And that's sadly where most of us end. Or our parents never taught us how to actually pray. And those catechism quotes have a whole section about you have to learn to pray and you have to help teach others to pray. You guys all as future parents have a responsibility to teach your kids how to pray. And it starts with bedtime prayers and prayers before meals. Those are beautiful things. Beautiful things. But if that's all it is, it's not a deep relationship or it's not a relationship deep enough to withstand the craziness and the turmoil of the world. And so anytime I raise my heart and mind to God, I'm praying. Actually, Paul tells us we should pray without ceasing, nonstop, where I'm so attuned to the working of the Lord in my life that I am aware of his presence in my life and I do everything I do. I still do pretty much all the same stuff, but I do it with him and for him. 
I got a boring lecture. All right. I'm going to offer this up for you, Lord. Come with me. Okay. And so there's a lot we could say. Prayer is ultimately a gift and it's a response. There's a great section of that prayer is a grace given and our response to that. So God always leads the way. And anything in the spiritual life, God leads the way. There's something called the primacy of grace. That everything we're doing, the whole reason you're in this room is that God is calling out to you and you've responded in some way. And again, that picture is never ending. He's just constantly pouring out and in different ways and in different aspects. Like tonight, the reading is about the talents that God gives grace in different ways to different people. But he's always giving you the grace, especially to pray. And so prayer is our response to that love. And so we have to use our will to choose it. And truth be told, if you really want to learn how to pray, you have to schedule it. You have to be consistent. Before I go to bed, when am I going to pray and how am I going to pray? And that's not more than just asking for stuff, but when am I going to spend time with our Lord, raise my mind and heart to him? When am I going to read the Bible? When am I going to pray the rosary? We'll talk about these things. When am I just going to go to the church and just say, hi, Jesus, and sit there? Super important. You start with like five minutes a day, and all of a sudden, you start to realize, wow, this, there's more to this relational thing of Christianity than I thought. But I just want to cover what the Catechism then talks about in terms of forms of prayer and expressions of prayer. So it basically says there's all different forms of prayer. They describe it as adoration, blessing, petition, intercession, thanksgiving, and praise. And I think you guys actually know a lot of this. Intuitively, we can, we can grasp some of it. Adoration's a little hard. The Catechism describes it as silence before the Lord. It's the first act where I recognize that God is God and I am not. That I would only adore God and God alone. It's an act due to God alone. Blessing. That would be both God blesses us, but we can bless others. Blessing is just, um, the translation of the word is really just good saying benediction. So to say good things about the Lord or about others. Petition, asking for stuff, pretty straightforward. Intercession, asking others to ask for stuff for us, also pretty straightforward. Ask each other to pray. If we're not praying for all of each other as a community, we're probably doing something wrong. So I encourage you to, as part of your prayers, make a list. Things you want to pray for and pray for each other. Thanksgiving, yes. If all you do is just sit in the chapel for five, ten, an hour, and just thank God. Thank you, Lord, for this or that. That's beautiful. It's a great prayer life. I found a very helpful exercise is to take an extended amount of time, half hour or so, and go through the stages of your life, childhood, adolescence, middle school, high school, early years of college, up to this very moment, and ask God to shine light of where he's been in all of those moments and thank him for it. It's a really beautiful beautiful exercise of prayer. So do that a week from Wednesday in adoration. Um, And then we got praise. Praise is sometimes described as the language of heaven, giving, giving God this recognition that he is good, right? And that's hard sometimes when our lives aren't that good. But remember that sin and evil and suffering is not originally from God. So I can always praise him. And that's what we're going to be doing in heaven forever is praising God. The unique thing that only a human being can do compared to other creatures is give God praise. Okay. Then expressions of prayer. So that's the forms of prayer, the expressions of prayer. Don't worry about like really memorizing these terms that can be sometimes confusing of expressions versus forms. But basically the expressions is there's three ways of which we live out these forms of prayer. Vocal prayer, Meditative prayer and contemplative prayer. Vocal prayer is any pre-written prayer. Think the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, this prayer before study that I gave, my nighttime prayers, now I lay me down to sleep if that's what you do, your bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts. Vocal prayer is any pre-written prayer, and that's beautiful. That's very important. Sometimes you just don't have the words, and sometimes there are Other holy people that have written such beautiful words, they should be shared. But again, this is where prayer usually stops. What about meditative prayer and contemplative prayer? So I just want to give you a taste and encourage you to ask for this grace to grow in meditative prayer and contemplative prayer. 
This is that silent prayer before God. Meditative prayer is often a search. I'm seeking. I'm trying to figure out what you're doing, God, in my life and in the world, or most clearly in the Bible. I read a passage of the Bible, and I hear Jesus is doing something. I'm like, what is that about? Jesus, why would you say this? seems like you were angry, or it seems like you didn't care about those people's questions. And you meditate. You seek to try to find out what's going on. I'm seeking out. I'm attentive to the sights and the sounds. You can actually sometimes use imagination to help you in this. If I was there in this scene and Jesus is speaking to me, and I seek to know. And so we can do that for Scripture, but we can also do that in our lives. To take time and meditate on my day. Jesus, I was really short with my friend, and all she wanted was just someone to listen to her and grab a cup of coffee. I'm sorry. Help me. It's a beautiful prayer. It's meditating on how you can grow in holiness, how you can be a better friend, son, daughter, etc. Then contemplation. Contemplation is very hard to understand and because uh, it's kind of nice. If you actually read that catechism section, vocal prayer, pretty straightforward. Meditative prayer, straight, straightforward. And then contemplation, it's like all these analogies. And I sometimes joke, it's like contemplation is like a pillow of fluffy clouds. Contemplation is like a dream of lilacs and roses, right? Because in its sense, it's what can't be fully described because it's the actual real presence of Jesus. Or, or sorry, I should say the real presence of God in a way that almost, almost escapes our ability to understand it. So whereas meditative is actively seeking, passive is solely receiving. It's those moments of absolute peace that's unexplainable. I go to the chapel. I'm so stressed out, and all of a sudden I'm overwhelmed by God's love and God's peace. That is an experience of contemplation, you could say. St. Uh, Teresa of Avila says, it's nothing more than a conversation among friends. That I'm in the presence of the one I love, and I can be with them freely. It's looking at God, looking at you. Looking at God, looking at you. How does he look at you? If you only knew the look of love Jesus had for you all. In your worst sin, if you only knew his look of love. That's contemplation. That's deep. And it's really these type of prayers that's going to sustain you throughout life. And it takes time and it's hard. Okay. So continue to, we're going to talk about prayer as we go. Most of the lessons, just kind of something, we'll give you a little bit more. Um, We hope to introduce you to the rosary next week, which is actually a beautiful Mix of vocal, meditative, and contemplative prayer. Um, Far more than just saying words. So just do talk to your sponsors about prayer and practice prayer yourself. If you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing, awesome, welcome to the club. It's very difficult. And actually, I actually use this, last thing I'll say on this, is I use this to say, because this idea, what's called, introduce this fancy word already once tonight, concupiscence. Concupiscence is our inclination to sin. I think one of the greatest proofs of this concupiscence is that the very thing I'm made for, which is relationship, is one of the hardest things in my life, both among humans and with God. Anybody find relationships easy navigating this? If you do, let me talk to you because you're a saint. And you probably are very close to our Lord who is perfect relationship. And that's why, like, why wouldn't you want Christianity? If you realize that God is pure relationship of life and love. And the closer I get to, to him in that relationship, all of a sudden my relationships in my life are better. That's something so uniquely Christian and not present in any other religion. Who wouldn't want that? Okay, enough for that. Let's go for the church now. What is the church? Because actually this is usually how it works, right? We like relationship. I like spirituality. You know what I really don't like? The church. Does the church have a positive or negative connotation in the world these days? And maybe in your life. And maybe some of that's actually quite valid, to be perfectly honest. But I want to start with a quote from St. Cyprian, who's a saint around the year 250 is when he was actually made a bishop. And he has this beautiful quote. It's on the handout you'll get at the end of tonight. 
which I see is now at the door, so that's awesome. Make sure you get that. He says, no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. No one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. It's a beautiful line. Okay, so let's start there, and then we'll kind of work through that without hitting the board. But let's say, what do, when you think Catholic church or church, what do you think, and I'm going to take answers, so you just shout out answers, what do people say or think about the church? What does your average college student think or see about the church? Anyone just throw out some answers? And you can get ugly if you want. Yeah. Strict. strict. Yep. The church is just a strict thing. Yep. Rules. Yep. Church is all about rules. Scandals. Yep. Awesome. What's that? Corruption. Yes, exactly. What do what the people say about the church? What do they think of? A cult. A cult. Yeah. These are controlling people that are controlling you. You must be brainwashed. Judgmental. Judgmental. Yes. A business, it's all about money. It's all about money, right? They just want your money, right? It's funny. Every time I do this or morality, people all of a sudden have, all of a sudden, very quiet, now we got answers. What else? One or two more. Yeah. Opulence, yeah, over the top, especially with that money. Like, how could, you care about the poor, but you've got this? Why don't you sell all this, and then you could actually feed the poor? Yep. Old, yeah, old-fashioned, antique. Yeah, that worked in the past when we were driven by fear, but now we're free. I don't need that. So even that sense of, like, restricted, right? Okay, sweet. We can stop. (laughs) (laughs) Though you probably think some of these now. That's okay. But how did I start with the Trinity, right? What do you think of God, the Father? Big bearded guy in the sky. What do I think about the Son, even Jesus, well, eh, not yet. What do I think about the Holy Spirit, this bird or this fire? No. The same thing is I want tonight, I'm not going to be able to answer every objection, actually probably hardly any of that, but I want to give you the view of the church through the catechism and what is presented as the church. And so when you think of the Catholic church, I want you to think of one thing first and foremost. The Holy Trinity. You'll see on the handout when you get that the church is Trinitarian at its nature. This whole Trinity thing is everywhere. It comes out in everywhere. That the church was part of the plan of God the Father, instituted by Jesus Christ the Son, and revealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's my first frame of reference as we're talking about the church, thinking about the Trinity. The second frame of reference I'd like you to think of, any guesses? This is like kind of like read read my mind, Father. Mary, or and or motherhood. I want you to think of the church as mother. That line of no one can except God as Father does not have church as a mother. First Trinity, then motherhood, then third. You can think of like Peter or just hierarchy. Okay? And what we'll do is next week we'll actually cover Mary and the motherhood aspect. Today I want to cover Trinity and a little bit of Peter and the hierarchy. And so just very briefly... The Catechism explains that the Church is born out of the Trinity, a plan of the Father, instituted by Jesus, and revealed by the Holy Spirit. So God's plan for all of creation, and that creation was the Church. He had the plan all along to have a Church, a way to gather His people together. But obviously there is the fall, and the redemption and response of Jesus Christ is to institute a church. Jesus is in the building business of building churches. And we see that most clearly in Matthew 16, where he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now we have to understand what he means by church, but he is in the building business of churches. Sometimes there's a YouTube video a little while ago that was like, why I'm for spirituality but against religion. 
which is kind of silly because the evidence couldn't be more clear. Jesus is all about this church. Okay? And so where does Jesus institute the church? Well, there's a couple places we can see. One of the most beautiful places we can see is, well, at the Last Supper, when he gives over his body, take and eat, this is my body. Because the church itself is often described as the body of Christ. And so he institutes the church, you can say, in and through the Eucharist, which we're going to get to a little bit more concretely what that means in the second semester. But then also there's this beautiful moment at the cross where Jesus is offering his life in pure sacrifice, and we have a beautiful image of the church. Jesus, Mary, and John. Because what happens is Jesus is pierced at his side and outflows blood and water from his side, symbolic of the Eucharist and baptism. And who is there? His mother, Mary, to receive the love of the Son. The church, I would argue, in one sense is perfect with Jesus and Mary alone. Mary had faith. She believed. She was there right there. And so the church is born from the side of Christ, just as in Genesis, Eve is born from the side of Adam. What comes from that? Eve is described as mother of all the living. And so Mary becomes mother of all the living, those born to new life. And that's why John is there, to be the first son of the church where Jesus says to Mary on the cross, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. That Mary is our mother, and the church becomes our mother. What does a mother do? Gives life, nourishes, raises. And so what am I believing when I believe this church? I guess I'm going to cover this more than I thought. You're (laughs) believing this thing of of Mary into new life. That was instituted by Jesus. That was my point. (laughs) Plan of the Father, instituted by Jesus. See, Mary's so good, she'll just take you away. And revealed by the Holy Spirit. That's why the Pentecost Day is often referred to as the birthday of the church. Because now, all of a sudden, this church goes to the nations. And so, when it goes to the nations, it's interesting. There are beautiful things. There are both hierarchical gifts and charismatic gifts. Hierarchical meaning that the 12 apostles were there. And they were the ones that formed the hierarchy that go and spread this gospel message to the world. But there are also charismatic gifts. There are people there that also receive this power to even hear what was being said. And so there's this personal holiness and this growth in charisms of service toward the other. And then there's these hierarchical gifts. And so the church is revealed by the Holy Spirit. Now what is meant by the name church? The name church, it's The fancy Greek word is ekklesia, which is a beautiful word that means to be called out of. Kaleo is the Greek word to call. Ek means out. So to be called out. To be called out of what? Ultimately this world and into heaven. The church calls us out of this world and carries us up to heaven. Just as we had before that Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that the Son comes and goes back up to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the thing that works in the church to bring us back up to heaven. It's also a word that, that's what it literally means if you actually like piece together the Greek. But it means the sense of assembly or community. Assembly or community. Now I think one of the most difficult things is when we hear church, people are thinking a million different things. They're thinking the building down the road and that building down the road. Because you often hear this, well, what does the church say? And a lot of times I have to kind of clarify, like, well, what do you mean by the church? (laughs) Because I know there are people in the church that will say this, but that's not the church. And what we mean by church is actually, this is what makes it so confusing, I think, in many ways. That question of what does the church teach? Well, we got to be clear what we're talking about. And so the Catechism points out three different things that the church is designated as. When I hear the word church, The first is this universal community of believers, that which we understand as the worldwide Catholic Church. So think about that there is something that unites us with believing Catholics in Peru, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, 
in Russia, in New Guinea, in Burkina Faso, in France, in Italy. The worldwide church. That's the universal, which is actually the quite literal word of Catholic. So the church means this universal thing. But it also means a local community. So we are in the church of Madison. We're in the diocese of Madison. So there's actually a bishop that's in charge of every, see again, church (laughs) in the church of Madison. So there's this universal church. There's this local community called the diocese. And then there's also just this liturgical assembly. What are you doing on Sunday? I'm going to church. What does he mean? It means I'm going to St. Paul's to go worship, right? And so a lot of times you have to specify, well, what does, what does the church teach? Well, that could be a question of what, it, what is someone teaching at St. Paul's versus what is the diocese teaching versus what is the universal church teaching? And admittedly, that can get a little bit confusing at times of who's teaching what. But ultimately, that sort of question of what is meant by the name of church is, um, is helpful to kind of distinguish what we're talking about. Now, as we go to this, kind of moving on, I want to cover, because if I still, you know, ask that question, we're still kind of like, well, what is the church? And if, even if you go to the catechism, it has all of these names and images. Because in short, what we understand the church is, in fact, a great mystery. So it's hard to have a very precise definition, though I'll get you one by the end. But it's also just hard to understand what is this mystery. So there's all these names and images. And so you'll see, and actually this is in the back of your handout, there's a section on every one of these names and images, where we get it, because it's found in Scripture, and then something that the Catechism has. That's the the last two pages of your handout. You don't have to go over it now, because I'm just going to give you the highlights. The church is the kingdom of God, the family of God, the people of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each of these point to some aspect of the mystery of the church, but even then, all of that still doesn't actually explain everything. I just encourage you to read that, but I'd also want to point out there's something unique, because what is our way of understanding the church? It's the Trinity. Kingdom of God, family of God, people of God. Think Father. Body of Christ, bride of Christ. Think Son. Temple of the Holy Spirit, pretty self-explanatory. The Holy Spirit. I can't understand the whole church if I don't understand the whole Trinity and these different aspects of it, okay? So without going into each of these, because this would be like a class in and of itself to really dive into the scripture, where is this image coming from? Why are we explaining it? But this is what I mean by that the church is born out of the Trinity. It's a kingdom, it's a family, it's a people, it's a body, it's the bride, it's the temple. All of these mean something specific. But at the end of the day, I think what people kind of get and want to get at is we do have to understand that the church is both visible, there's a visible aspect, but the church is also invisible. There's an invisible aspect. Now this is actually, if you're coming from a non-Catholic Protestant tradition, chances are you're sometimes taught that, well, the church is just just the community of believers. It's just this sort of invisible bond that connects us. And I would say, yes, the church is an invisible bond that connects us. There's a communion that connects us. But that's not it. That's not the fullness. Because if the church is the body of Christ, let's just say, for example, what's the function of a body? Body is material. So there has to be a visible aspect. If we're going to call this the body of Christ, there has to be a visible aspect. There has to be a visible body that I can see if this is the church. And so the church has both a visible and an invisible. The visible is, you can think of the earthly, and you can even think, it's not exactly precise, but for a teaching point, it's the human element. 
pretty much all the bad stuff you think about the church is all in that visible human element. That's where we actually say, yes, the church is made of sinful human beings. And guess what? If you guys join it, we're going to add more sinful human beings to that church. Except those that are baptized. You're going to be totally clean. It's awesome. But then we're still going to struggle, right? So of course the church is imperfect because it's made of imperfect men and women. We know that. And Jesus even promises that his church in the gospel says it will be full of scandal. The weeds and the wheat grow together. So don't let the human visible aspect scandalize you from seeing the divine, the Trinitarian, the invisible, the heavenly. What I'm asking you to ultimately put faith in at the end of the day is not some person or that person, that human person, that bishop, that priest. Don't believe Father Tim even because it's Father Tim if you like Father Tim. Believe because of the Trinity, the divine aspect of this, okay? Believe because of the person Jesus who came to reveal and work through this church. But there does have to be some sort of visible thing that I agree to, that I look for. That's why it's probably easiest just to explain. Again, there could be more. Three visible elements of unity in the church that you're seeking information about. The three visible elements of unity would be common belief, common worship, and common leadership. Common belief would be things of like the creed and the catechism and moral teaching. Common worship would be liturgy and the sacraments. And common leadership would be essentially our, what's the sole authority of the Catholic Church? Come on, guys. No. The Word of God. The Word of God who is a person. Jesus. Who gives his authority to the apostles who gives them to the bishops, who become the bishops. And so what's really kind of cool about this is that whole meaning of life thing, know, love, and serve. There must be a common aspect of knowing, creed and catechism, common aspect of loving, moral, common aspect of serving, worship. And then we'll get to this leadership in a second. We probably will have to punt some of that till next time. But basically, what are you assenting to? What is the visible aspect of unity? There has to be a common faith that we say, yes, this is what we believe. That's why the catechism and the creeds are so important, because it's the thing you're assenting to. You're not assenting to the opinion of this bishop or that bishop. You're assenting to the doctrines given and clearly explained. Creed and catechism. Visible unity. And what am I consenting to? What am I assenting to in faith? Yes, that the liturgy is actually genuine contact with God. And that the sacraments actually give me that contact and grace flows through them. The sacraments are, and the liturgy is what forms the visible aspect of the church, right? Again, not some dude who screwed up and perhaps is corrupt. There have been tons of corrupt people in the church. And then leadership. Okay, here's where it gets fun. I'm assenting to the leadership of the word of God, who is a person, who gave that authority to the apostles, with, remember that word was magisterium, a teaching authority. What's their job? To serve the word of God. Not to be above it, but to serve it. And here's what's so unique about the Catholic faith, is that Jesus was with these apostles, breathed on them, gave them the power to forgive sins, gave them the power... Sorry, thank you for your patience. Um gave them the power to forgive sins, appointed them and said, go, you make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you. And those apostles did go out with that authority. And then what those apostles did is they laid hands on other men 
to go out and do the same. And you see this scripturally that actually once one of the apostles, Judas, betrays Jesus, they appoint another to take his place, his office. Matthias is his name. And so from the very beginning, the apostles went out and ordained, we would say, other men to go pass on the sacraments, to teach, to govern, to sanctify. So that literally, no exaggeration, every single priest or bishop in the Catholic Church was ordained, had hands laid on by a bishop, who had hands laid on by a bishop, who had hands laid on by a bishop, who had hands laid on by a bishop, all the way back to Jesus Christ. If your church can't go back to Jesus, it's probably not the Christian church. It's crazy. That's the claim. That we have common... So we accept the leadership authority, but the authority to serve the Word of God, to hand on the Word of God faithfully, to teach it. Which is why we can say, yeah, the church cannot err in matters of faith and morals. We see failure in the human element, but we never see failure in the divine element because it's born of the Trinity, passed down through the apostles. That's why there's four things that's often called the four marks of the church. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. It's also in your packet, so go ahead and read that. And this is kind of where I'll end because this is the part that really does get people. Well, like the bishops today, the priests today, can I really trust them? What's going on there? And what I wanted to do, and I'll just kind of introduce it, and then maybe at the next time we'll kind of start this, is you have to look at this beautiful passage of Matthew 16, where Jesus proclaims Peter to be the rock upon which the church is built. And then you have to compare that with this beautiful passage in Isaiah 22, an Old Testament passage, so I'm not, I'm just going to introduce the concept, so don't get too... This king, or there was this person in Isaiah 22 that was part of the kingdom of Israel. He was part of what was the Davidic kingdom, that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself through the Israelite people, and there was established a king, David. And David's son was Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. The son of David has this grand authority. And it's pretty amazing because... My favorite understanding of the church is this one line that was from the Second Vatican Council that said the, the church is the kingdom of Christ present in mystery. Or you could also say the kingdom of Christ present in sacrament. If you want to understand anything about how the Catholic Church works, we have to understand kingdom. And that's hard because we're Americans who are like, king bad, democracy good. God's like, well... Guess what? <laughs> I didn't establish a democracy. I established a kingdom in the, on the, based on the person of Jesus Christ. So who is the king of the Catholic Church? Jesus. Then what is the Pope? Peter. Well, if you read this Isaiah 22, you understand he's actually what's called the one over the house, the al-bayit. He's the prime minister. He's the steward. He's the one in charge of the house while the king is in heaven. He acts with the authority of the king, but is not the king. So the Pope is not our ultimate authority in the same sense that the word of God is. So Jesus is the king. Peter is the prime minister. And all the popes to this day, which also have an unbroken line. And then there's more. In the Old Testament, in this kingdom... The first real king was a guy named Solomon, son of David. Anybody know how many wives Solomon had? 800. I know, it's a lot. Which one of those 800 were the queen? If you're the king, you've got 800 wives, which one's the queen? The answer is none of them. Because actually, in the wake of Solomon, the mother was the king, was the queen. Mother was not the king. The mother was the queen. Bathsheba, the first queen mother of the kingdom. And actually, in the Old Testament, every time a new king is mentioned, look at this in First and Second Kings, every time a valid king is mentioned, you know who's mentioned? 
his mother. So-and-so was king, and his mother was, boom. That's kind of a weird line. That's nice. Glad we gave a shout-out to the ladies. Why? Because we wanted to understand that the church is the kingdom of Christ present in sacrament, modeled after this Davidic kingdom. Who is the queen mother of the kingdom of Christ present in mystery? Mary. That's all Mary is. I shouldn't say all. That's, that, that's a bad statement. <laughs> that's huge. <laughs> Mary is our queen mother. Okay, so there's a lot more we can do with that. That's why the church, too, has this beautiful aspect of motherhood. Then an old, So first, this is kind of the big takeaway. We will end here. See the church. Don't first see the human. It's ugly. It's bad, I'll tell you. I've seen it. I've seen it from the inside. And yet I still believe. All the more. In fact, when I see this sort of scandal, I'm like, sweet. We should have destroyed ourselves six times over in the last 20 years. And yet this, something still keeps moving. Perhaps the church is divine. Born of the Trinity. With understanding Mary, the church is our mother. And then, yes, we understand this Petrine hierarchical model as part of the kingdom. That's what we want you to understand have faith in. G.K. Chesterton was a convert to the faith. He had a wonderful line. Because a lot of times just that, it's the question of moral authority. I don't like people telling me what to do. That's what keeps a lot of people away. And he said, I don't need a church to tell me I'm wrong where I already know I'm wrong. I need a church to tell me I'm wrong where I think I'm right. I need a church to tell me where I'm wrong where I think I'm right. And she'll do that. The church will do that. Right? And so praise God for this church that gives us Jesus and is our mother that gives us life. So take that into break. I pray you have a beautiful break. Reflect on that and we'll kind of tie up a few loose ends. And I just, it's been a complete joy to be with you so far and count on my prayers for you um, in these days ahead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to What We Believe. If you have any questions or would like more information about becoming Catholic, do not hesitate to reach out, and you can find our contact information on uwcatholic.org.